Welcome to Think Digital Futures, I'm Dan Butler. We talk a lot about exciting and scary new technologies on this show and what they mean for our everyday lives. Well, today we're going to zoom out a little bit and talk about the moment we find ourselves in, this era of incredible change. We can call it the fourth industrial revolution. The first was sparked by the loom machines that revolutionized the manufacturing industry and led to steam power. The second involved electricity, air travel and more. And the third was the digital revolution that began last century. And now, in the fourth industrial revolution, we bear witness to the truly awesome power of artificial intelligence, blockchain technologies and increasingly sophisticated robotics. Just like the preceding revolutions, it isn't just the technological advances themselves, but the all-pervasive social changes that they engender. Nicholas Davis is an adjunct professor at Swinburne University of Technology, a visiting professor at University College London, and together with Klaus Schwab, the executive chairman of the World Economic Forum, wrote a book detailing the opportunities and challenges our revolution poses. He and I spoke earlier. You refer in the book or um, advise against viewing technology as uh, uh, mere tools. What's the danger of um, of approaching them in this in this way? The danger is that if you think of something as a tool without any kind of ethics or morality or power over you, over you, you you think it's something that we can easily pick up and put down whenever we want, something to discard perhaps, or, or and you say, okay, look, I'm the I'm the user, I'm the human here, I'm I'm the the subject, and and this object is something that that essentially is there to serve me, um, and I think we if if we take that view with technology and with the built environment, we'd be making a um, a mistake because the evidence is that the that humans are technological beings, we're tool users, but those tools, the the very existence of those tools, um, have a huge amount of power in shaping us. Um, there's the old adage that um, you know, to the person with the hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, that That's a little bit of a quip that points to the, the fact that if you have a tool, you're more likely to use it. Um, it's why we don't have uh, guns lying around in, in Australian society, um, because guns as tools invite a certain type of action. Um, but there's also a little bit more of an insidious action of, of the way that, that, that tools and infrastructure can pow- have power over us. And, and that is they, they can be designed either explicitly or perhaps sometimes recklessly to exclude people or to um, affect their human rights. Um, and one of the classic examples of this, in, in at least in the literature on technology, um, uh, is the way that, that New, New York, the city of New York, was designed um, when it was master planned um, in the early parts of the, the 20th century. Um, the decision was made to actually uh, create quite low overpasses across major major highways that were leading out of the city towards um towards the beaches um on the the eastern side of of the city over on on long island um and those overpasses were deliberately put at a low enough level that buses couldn't pass under them and the argument goes that part of the reason behind that was because low-income communities in new york um heavily heavily relied on on the bus system they didn't have um, cars themselves in that period cars were very expensive back in the early part of the 20th century um, and so relying on public transport meant if the, if the public transport couldn't get to the beach 
um, those beaches would be essentially reserved for more privileged populations. Um, and uh, there's good evidence that that was a very deliberate choice by the designers of, of the city. An example of um, a breakthrough that the highway system and the road system are very much a breakthrough technology and infrastructure technology at the time of the second industrial revolution, because the car had only recently come into existence as we, we know it with the internal combustion engine. Um, and yet the design of that infrastructure, you, the, the highway wasn't a tool, um, or if it, at least it wasn't a tool that everyone had power over. It was something that stayed there, and those overpasses still exist, uh, many of them, and uh, and really shaped the social fabric and the set of opportunities that people had. So, so as we think about technologies today, it's good for us to to step back and say, um, Facebook or or any kind of sharing platform, it's not just something that I can choose to use or not. It has a whole set of power in terms of how it's designed, um, and in many cases, I can't afford not to use it. Um, because maybe my employer wants me to um, uh, engage in that platform in a certain way. Um, how then uh, do we embed values into technology? It's a very broad question, but I suppose it begins in the very statement that technology isn't without value. Yeah, I think it does. So, First of all, recognizing that we do always embed our values in technology. We, you know, uh, the, the, the modern example of this is any machine learning system is learning from something. Um, you, you, try, you, you get a problem normally in supervised learning. You, you have a particular um, uh, challenge that you want to train the computer to, to solve. Um, the, one of the classic examples is distinguishing, um, you know, cats from dogs on the Internet. And we've got a lot of data on cats and dogs on the internet. Um, so you can you put in a, a picture and you select a number of, of, of images labeled cats and, and you train the train the data on that. Um, you test it on a large number and hopefully you get, as you are today, a well over 99.5% accuracy um, on, on determining if that's a cat or not. But the quality of data you train that on will determine the accuracy of the, uh, the system on new images uh, in being able to determine that. Um, and so the system can be very biased by what you put in, by the design of the algorithm itself, by the by the the context in which you use it. Um, and we've we've seen, I'm I'm sure um, uh, you and your listeners are, are, are very aware. We've seen some cases where, by training uh, machine learning algorithms on uh, limited privileged populations, their accuracy rate with um, with marginalized communities and and less represented populations is is awful uh, which in the case of making decisions in social justice is um is uh, a travesty and a, and a human rights uh, issue of, of huge proportions so that um, element of understanding that 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 bias is actually a question of you know of the values of the system uh, is and, and the values of the, the decisions to use that system um, is is important. It, it's it's going on beyond just saying this is a faulty tool, and it's more saying, uh, gosh, actually, our values, the the way in which the data that we have around us, the the choices that we make, are being actually locked into and built into, say, um, a sentencing tool or or even a uh, a soap dispenser in the bathroom at the other end that that doesn't work on people with dark uh, darker um, hued skin. Um, we're building in 
our our ethics, our our values um, inadvertently or or perhaps deliberately sometimes in those systems, um, and being able to understand that making sure those systems work effectively across a wide range of populations is uh, is is incredibly important. So first step, recognizing it. Second step. Um, trying to adjust for it. And third step, if you do see it happening, we've got to really rethink the design and use of those technologies. Uh, I suppose it leads into the um, obvious danger about technologies is that they uh, have the opportunity to um, level some inequalities but entrench others. Uh, that's uh, that's the case, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. And... Um, and I think that what 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 we should do in taking a kind of a bit more of a historical perspective on this is to understand that that that's always been the case. Um, we we have very luckily over the last um, uh, few industrial revolutions dramatically inc increased um, uh, average and median incomes overall, uh, and people on the whole across the planet are living longer. There's far fewer people living in absolute poverty than there, there ever were in history. Technology has driven that growth um, uh, combined with uh, innovations in markets, um, in much more elements of, of positive cooperation and both peace and economic activity have, have gone hand in hand um, over that period. The world is now um, kind of safer and fewer people uh, are dying in in conflict than they ever have as well. So we can't we can't um, just ignore the fact that technology has overall led to great things. Uh, but throughout those periods, we've also created massive externalities, excluded people, um, and 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 actually directly hurt people. Uh, and we continue to do so. If you if you look at the the externalities that come from uh, the road system and the 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 automobile, uh, you know we still have. Um, millions of deaths around the world a year, um, you know, in very traumatic circumstances from from road deaths, from road crashes, uh, and that's something that that technology um, could could help could help to hope to solve. But at the same time, we have to be really careful to design, for instance, autonomous vehicle policy and autonomous vehicle systems to make sure that it's not just wealthy people that get to um, enjoy that service. Um, to make sure that the congestion of um, the potential congestion that results from uh, lots of cars driving around with no one in them doesn't unfairly uh, fall on poorer communities. Um, and uh, that that as much as possible, the opportunities of new technologies are, are being offered to, you know, as many Australians as, as possible. And, and the benefits are, are really being being shared. And that, that includes in, 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 things like taxation as well, Daniel. Like we, there are lots of elements here in new technologies where um, where our policies, our regulations, uh, you know, need to be, you know, looked at and carefully designed, um, and to be done so for the long term sustainability of of the country as well as everyone's uh, uh, benefit. Just on that matter of taxation, um, going into into the fourth industrial revolution uh, that is going to revolutionise industry, of course, and we may see, um, or, or almost certainly will see, the automation of a large swathe of jobs. What do you think about um, uh, the the prospect of, say, monetising data or taxing data? This is a there's a really diff difficult set of questions here um 
Traditionally, you know, taxation systems operate on a couple of principles. The first one is the tax that you you can practically collect is a lot more important than the tax that you could theoretically charge. So we want to make sure that in tax systems that um, that the government is is and and people are focused on the the um, the practicalities of of being able to be fair in terms of um, design, um, be practical in terms of collection, um, and then on the back of that, um, uh, be very effective in terms of you know, redistribu redistribution and, and spending of those uh, tax receipts in different ways. So uh, you know, when you say things like taxing data, we have to, or even taxing robots, um, it's the first step is saying, well, what do we actually mean by that? Because if we mean, uh, we're taxing taxing high technology uh, capital or capital that has a, a high tech component in it. Um, uh, immediately, you get the reaction of, "Well, hold on a second. We want to make sure that that uh, Australians as a whole are more productive. That Australian businesses and businesses operating in Australia are as productive as possible, because we know that um, you know over history, it's higher productivity that creates jobs, etc. So, so if we're if we start to put a barrier in ways of things that raise productivity, we actually could be shooting ourselves in the foot and, and end up with an ineffective uh, tax regime. Um, of course, on the other hand, if you try and say, well, we should be taxing consumption, that um, that means that uh, you know the people that have a highest share of consumption uh, in their daily lives uh, as a proportion of their income, which is the poorest people in, in Australia and around the world, um, they will be hardest hit by the, the tax. Um, so I think finding ways to make sure that we're we're taxing kind of either revenue or profits at the appropriate moment, um, and we're able to accurately assess that and and that not be be hidden or or uncertain in any way, um, as in, is an important first start to this um, discussion. And of course, we are look Australia has been looking very closely. Uh, at this um, issue, Treasure, Treasury has been looking in particular at, at, at new ways to um, tax digital platforms, the largest digital platforms in particular, and uh, and the OECD as well has a major project on this topic that that's that's ongoing, and um, I I think the 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 solution has to be one where lots of countries come together because in a in a globalized world, uh, it it would be tricky for Australia to unilaterally. Um, uh, do something that diverged greatly from the rest of the world um, if that meant that Australian consumers and businesses lost out on the technology investments that, that would otherwise come. Uh, what do you think about um, uh, the future of work? It's a very broad question, but um, and also the, the impact there for, for the education system. What is it that we should be teaching people that they can actually use uh, uh, for their professions going into the future? I think broadly the, the future of work is one where the tasks we do day to day uh, are going to change slightly faster than they have been. Um, Alpha Beta Advisors in Sydney did a great report with um, uh, FYA, Future Youth Australia, and uh, Foundation for Youth Australia, I think it is, and, and, a, and a few others, that, um, that that pointed out over the last uh, 10 or 12 years in Australia, uh, changes in technology has have shifted Australians' um, uh, work patterns and work processes quite a significant amount. 
uh, Australian, the average Australians or a million Australian perhaps has gained about two hours a week of more highly paid, higher value work um, in, in, in customer and client interactions, in more interpersonal work. Um, and has, has has done two hours a week less of of routine administrative and and um, kind of manual work. Um, so that's a good thing. Um, it, it's it's correlated with higher wages and um, with also with uh, higher job satisfaction. The danger comes if it's not just um, a small percentage of tasks that change or perhaps up to a, a third of tasks that we expect to change in most jobs over the next five years. Um, but if that starts to kind of cascade into entire job categories uh, being destroyed uh, and perhaps with multiple categories kind of disappearing um, all at once, then you do get this shock whereby people currently trained and expert in those positions or relying on those positions and well-trained in those positions um, have to uh, transition into other jobs and other sectors relatively rapidly. And, and the ability for our education system to cope with that at the moment is, is fairly low. Um, World Economic Forum uh, research on that topic shows that to um, if you have a good affinity across a, a job category, and so you want to move from a, um, a, a position in perhaps in, in the, the, the transport industry, which now starts to become more and more automated, and you want to move to a, a similar but different position um, in logistics, in many cases, that shift to stay at the same level of wages and job conditions, you require about two years of experience and two years of additional training. And that's a really huge cost. If you multiply that across the workforce, um, that's really difficult. So I think we really need to be anticipating as much as possible where those transitions are occurring and um, putting our education efforts uh, directly at, at those transitions now. Uh, to ensure that that people are looked after and that the economy doesn't suffer a, a shock in terms of an oversupply of of less skilled people, um, and of course the the loss of of both consumption and production that that that, that would imply. Um, I do also think that we want um, universities like UTS and and others uh, to be working on a, a broader set of skills, uh, technical skills, basic technical skills, um, innovation skills, uh, collaboration skills. And cognitive skills that are that are very um, adaptable uh, to multiple different jobs and uh, and areas where people will be working with technology. Uh, a lot of us tend to define ourselves through our work, and given the incredible changes that are, going to, that are not only going to happen there, but in so many aspects of life, because of the in, um, the the change that's coming. Do you ever deal? With the sort of more philosophical question of 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 what it means to be human going going forward into this new age. Yeah, I think it's a really the question of what it means to be human can be taken in a couple of different ways. I, I don't think we're morphing into to uh, aliens or kind of terminators uh, in the short term, and and despite you know things like Neural Neuralink, um, Elon Musk's uh, startup, etc. Um, we're not that close yet to be able to upload our consciousness into computers. Uh, we are starting to be able to draw images of dreams and thoughts, however, which is very interesting. And, and the whole new neurotechnology space is one of the most fascinating and, and scary that I spend time uh, looking at. Um, but I think the question of what it means to be human is is much more a realization that that we are we are beings that rely heavily on technology. And you know, if an if an if an archaeologist or anthropologist wants to look for evidence 
of humans. Um, they will look for evidence of tools because we are tool users. That's what distinguishes us from other animals. Uh, and the tools that we use, as we, we've already talked about, Daniel, really define the type of society and structure that we work in and, 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 and heavily influence our relationships with people. Um, you can just look at the influence of social media on um, on the way we engage with one another in public debate, um, on on voting patterns and the influence on on politics and and uh, political discourse, um, or the ability that mobile phones plus GPS plus internet access and, and applications have had on on dating life and relationship formation has been incredible. In just all all those changes have happened in the last ten years, really. Um, so so I think the question of what it means to be human is not so much are we changing ourselves into something we don't recognize but more to say what are those aspects of our ourselves as human beings that we, we really want technology to magnify um, and we probably don't want you know violent and uh and aggressive and um you know discriminatory tendencies where, whereby humans have traditionally created in-group and out-group dynamics and um, you know, pointed the finger and, and, and blamed others, people's for, for kind of mistakes, etc. Those are probably not the human emotional tendencies that we want our technology to magnify. Um, and yet there's a very strong case to be made that, that algorithms today that serve us information are training us uh, to, to, to have more extreme views and to, to click on things that more and more accord with, with our, um, our prejudices and biases. Um, so fighting those kind of aspects um, and really attending to things like the International Declaration on Human Rights um, as part of what we mean to be um, human, um, those rights that are embedded in international law and, and should be embedded in the technologies around us. Uh, I think those aspects of humanity are what we can turn to and, and do a check on our own behaviour every day, like so being being at the breakfast table with the kids with, with a tablet or phone and, and a check on that behaviour and what it means to be human in a family context, but also in the policies we make or the products we design.